I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Hey Lurkers, welcome to this week's episode. First, I just want to let you know that I am not recording at my usual recording spot in my home. This week, I'm actually recording in Virginia on the water. I mean, I'm not physically on the water. I am I can see the water from where I'm recording. This is actually another haunted location. We've had strange things happen here before where the smoke detectors have gone off on their own and not because the batteries needed to be changed. Um, there's been other creepy things that have happened here. Perhaps I will make a bonus episode while I'm here and share them with you. This is not an ideal recording place because we have the background noise of the motor on the refrigerator. I'm in a large room, so there's a little bit of an echo. So I apologize if the quality is not up to par. Granted, the quality is not the greatest anyway, but bear with me. Um, The entire family had some kind of crappy stomach virus and I just was not able to record when I normally do. So this will be a little bit later. It'll be released Friday, but it will be probably later in the morning. Of course, you'll realize that when it's not available at midnight. Anyway, this week we are discussing a cryptid. The Flatwoods monster really wasn't a cryptid. It was more of an alien UFO topic than a cryptid. That was episode 85 for anybody who didn't listen to that and may be interested. So this week we're going to take a look at the diminutive creature known as the Pukwudgie. And I'll just tell you now that I used to enjoy saying the word Pukwudgie, but when you say it as many times as I'm going to say it in this episode, it gets a little old. But Puckwudgie's kind of a cute name. Makes you think of a really cute, nice, sweet creature. Puckwudgies are a creature that comes from the lore of the Native Americans in the New England and Great Lakes areas of the United States and southeastern Canada. Many indigenous people have legends of Puckwudgies, including the Chippewa, the Wampanoag, the Algonquin, the Abenaki, the Lenape, and the Mohicans. So what exactly am I talking about? Puckwudgies are about two to three feet tall, though there are some described as knee high, and a few are mentioned closer to four feet. They are human-like with larger ears, noses, lips, and fingers. Their noses are sometimes said to be canine-like. Their skin is smooth and gray and sometimes glows. The mouth is lined with sharp dagger-like teeth and their fingers are tipped with sharp talons. One witness said he saw a Pukwudgie with fur and glowing red eyes and a nose like a wolf, and when it ran off, it made a disturbing moan or howling noise. The creatures are very fast and even have the ability to shapeshift into various animals. The most common form is that of a porcupine, though when in porcupine form, they tend to walk on two legs rather than four. They can also shift into cougars or other animals of prey. Oddly, they are said to have a sweet smell, 
similar to the smell of flowers. Their supernatural powers don't stop with shape-shifting. They can also turn invisible at will, can confuse people, or make them forget things, entice humans with just the sound of their voice, and even bring harm to people simply by staring at them. Allegedly, they also have supernatural strength, and though they are small, they can overpower a full-grown man. The name Pukwaji means person of the wilderness, and that's where they lurk, in the forest, and are considered spirits of the forest. They are said to be the oldest mythical creature in North America. And if you follow mythical type creatures, you might be picking up on some similarities with other creatures, like goblins, trolls, and leprechauns of Europe. Even though they have supernatural powers and strength, they also carry tools like small daggers made of bone or flint, pointed sticks, and bows that shoot magic or poisoned arrows. They are also fond of throwing a type of poison dust at their victims and use sand in their victims' eyes to render them blind. The nature of the Pukwaji depends greatly on the area they are found in and within the folklore of different Native American tribes. The Ojibwe tribe and other in the Great Lakes region, Pukwajis are considered mischievous but basically good-natured creatures. They play tricks on people, but they aren't dangerous. The Abenaki and other Northeast Algonquin tribes say Pukwajis can be dangerous, but only to those who treat them with disrespect. And the Wampanoag and other tribes of southern New England, Pukwajis are capricious and dangerous creatures who play harmless tricks or even help a human neighbor, but are just as likely to steal children or commit deadly acts of sabotage. So basically, leave them alone if you see one. A person perceived to be annoying the Pukwudgie is subject to nasty tricks, like being stalked and having their memories erased, or being followed, and sometimes there are even deadlier consequences. Pukwudgies have been known to lure people to their death, launch poison arrows at them, or attack people with short knives and spears, and of course, blind them with sand. They might kidnap your children, or push you off a cliff, or persuade you to commit suicide. And if they kill you, you still won't be free of them. It's said that they have the ability to control the souls of people who were victims of the creature's enticements and died as a result. They turn the souls into spheres of light, and they use them to lure more victims. The lights compel people to follow them, making them disregard their own safety. These lights are sometimes compared to will-o'-wisps, or lights that appear over marshy ground. The hypnotic effect causes the people to pursue the lights wherever they lead, whether that's to the middle of a swamp, a pool of quicksand, or straight off a cliff, or straight to the Pukwudgie itself. I knew quicksand was going to be an issue as an adult. I did not think it would be because of a small, crazy little creature, but I knew when I was growing up that there would be an issue with quicksand somewhere in my adult life. Native Americans believed that at one time, Pukwudgies were friendly to humans, but then turned against them. According to Wampanoag legend, Pukwudgies and humans coexisted peacefully at one time, but the humans basically paid more attention to Mausop, who was a giant known to be a kind-spirited deity who created the landmass known as Cape Cod. 
the Pukwudgies grew jealous of the attention given to Malsop. Honestly, is that hard to believe that these little creatures would get super jealous? So the Pukwudgies were offended that they weren't as well-loved as Malsop, and they began to cause more and more mischief. The Wampanoags went to Squanit, who was Malsop's wife, to talk to her about the problem with the Pukwudgies. Squanit appealed to Malsop, and he exiled the Pukwudgies, and forcefully spread them far and wide throughout North America. Many of the Pukwudgies found their way back and instigated a more belligerent relationship with humans and Malsop. Pukwudgies began kidnapping and killing children, setting fire to whole villages, and driving Native Americans into the woods and killing them. It's said the Pukwudgies eventually killed Malsop's five sons and Malsop himself, which coincides with the giant disappearing from Wampanoag folklore. After that, there was always a tenuous relationship with humans. And if you think that's it about Pukwudgies, and there are no eyewitness accounts, you're wrong. There are many accounts of people encountering what they believe are Pukwudgies. Author and amateur archaeologist Paul Starsman claimed to have encountered Pukwudgies numerous times. Starsman's first encounter was in 1927, when he was 10 years old. He was walking alone on a trail in a park when he discovers a gravel pit, and there he saw a little man about two feet tall, barefoot and wearing a light blue robe that might have been a man's shirt, perhaps taken from a clothesline. He said the creature stood about ten yards away. The little man had dull blonde hair that covered his head like a helmet, and left his larger-than-normal round ears to protrude. He had a round face that was pinkish in color, like he had a sunburn. After a few moments, the little man ran off into the woods. Not long after the first encounter, Starsman was out hiking with a friend in the same area when he and his friend came across a similar creature. This time, however, the creature, or little man, doesn't immediately run off into the woods. The creature followed Starsman and his friend for a bit before disappearing. Interesting to note here that Paul Starsman is a Native American descendant. Perhaps that's why the creature followed him on the trail. A woman named Eloise also encountered a Pukwudgie when she was a child. She remembers playing alone in the park when she was approached by a group of little people who seemed curious about her and what she was doing. Eloise said they had high-pitched voices and spoke in a language she could not understand. In Freetown, Massachusetts State Park in Fall River and Lakeville, there is a 100-foot cliff known as the Ledge that overlooks a quarry. There have been many suicides at the Ledge by people not known to be mentally ill. Some say Pukwudgies are to blame for luring people to their deaths. I do want to say that mental illness is not cut and dried, and sometimes those who appear happiest are in fact the ones who need the most help, like Robin Williams. So I didn't know whether to include that little snippet of story, but it is part of the Pukwudgie legend, so I'm including it, but I'm saying you can't blame Pukwudgies for that. There was a Massachusetts woman who reported seeing a Pukwudgie in the forest, who pestered her by showing up at her home and tapping on her window at night as she slept. I came across a story about two different Pukwudgie encounters in Lawrence, Massachusetts. It involved a boy by the name of Bob. 
Bob was a child, around the age of seven or eight years old. He was watching TV with his cousins at his grandparents' house. They were all sitting on the couch that faced the TV and had its back to the doorway into another room. As they watched TV, Bob felt someone pull on the back of his hair. He thought it was his cousin and he told her to stop. His cousin, of course, denied pulling his hair. A few seconds later, he felt the tug on his hair again, and again he yelled at his cousin, who still, of course, insisted she hadn't done it. A few more seconds passed, and Bob once again felt someone tug on his hair, only this time he was a little quicker. He turned around, angrily, expecting to catch his cousin behind the couch. But anger quickly turned to surprise, when instead of his cousin, he saw a little old lady with long white hair. She was two to three feet tall, and when she saw Bob looking at her, she ran out the front door and disappeared. Bob told his grandmother about his encounter, and she said, Oh, don't worry, honey, they're friendly. Bob's second encounter happened on a day when his mother took him and his cousins out to the movies. After the movie, they returned to the grandparents' house. The door was locked, which wasn't an issue because no one was supposed to be home. But what they were surprised at was that there was a lamp on in the living room. Bob's cousin looked in the window to see if she could see her grandparents, but immediately jumped back from the window and screamed, I'm getting out of here. Confused, Bob's mother looked in the window. She saw a very short old man with long white hair run out of the living room. She gathered the kids and quickly left. Bob's mother knew she should have realized something was going on in the house because they sometimes found the tin of coffee opened and spilled on the floor and stored bottles of Coca-Cola were often found open and half gone. When the grandparents were asked about what was seen, they shrugged and said they had rats. I can't imagine someone being nonchalant about having rats. Also, I've never seen rats to have opposable thumbs and the capability to open a bottle of Coke. The beings that were seen in the house were short, fast, and had long hair, and were mischievous and shy. If you're like me, you might have wondered about the family history here, like is it possible they have native roots? And you'd be correct, the grandparents both are of Mi'kmaq heritage. The Mi'kmaqs also have a being like the Pukwudgie that is known to play tricks like tying hair in knots, which might have been what was going on with poor Bob. Another brief encounter took place in New Hampshire while a man was out tapping maple trees for syrup. He said he had a Pukwudgie chase him up a tree and try to bite him. The man said, He is the real boogeyman with many sharp pointed teeth a hairy, furry critter with lots and lots of hair, with a despicable nature, and he can eat you. He is the real green-eyed screaming goblin with stick-like arms and three fingers on each hand, and he's got three toes with sharp claws on oversized turkey feet. There's an encounter from the southeastern Massachusetts town of Raynham involving a gentleman named Bill Russo and his dog Sam. Those of you who follow cryptids may be familiar with this account, as it is well known in Pukwudgie circles. Mr. Russo lived in a ranch house in a residential neighborhood. His house was about 600 yards from a large area of thick woodlands that surrounded a cluster of swamps and natural springs. For several years, he worked 3 p.m. to midnight and was known to take his dog Sam, 
a Rottweiler Shepherd mix, out for a walk once he was home. Sam was female, her name was actually Samantha, and she was about 80 pounds and had a reputation for being fearless. Russo told a story about a time he was at a zoo of sorts with the dog when he was charged by a bison bull that hit the wire fence and Sam the dog went after the bison and was able to make the animal back up. She was also known to break up fights between her human brothers. She was a brave and protective dog that didn't seem to be afraid of anything. During their walks, they usually stayed on the sidewalks, but this one night, Sam wanted to head for the woods. There was an area that locals referred to as the High Tees that was basically the area where high-tension electrical wires passed through. It was about 50 feet wide with pine forest on either side and grass and brush in the middle, and that's the area where they were walking along a crossroad. Back then, the town of Raynham was quiet, with most of the residents sound asleep at that time of night. Russo said that on those nightly walks, he never saw so much as a light in a window. And there wasn't even a night shift for the local police either back then. About 500 feet from the door of his house, Sam the dog started pulling on her leash, whimpering and shaking and refusing to take another step. Russo tried coaxing her along, telling her that they were headed home to get some food. I know I say the word treat, and Angus the bulldog typically comes running, but Sam wouldn't budge. That's when Bill Russo heard some strange noise. Kerr, kerr, he want you. Kerr, 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 he want you. Chew, he want you. It was a high-pitched voice floating through the darkness and sounded like a begging child. It repeated its cry, its pitch pitch intensifying. Russo thought it sounded like a toddler just learning to speak. Then he noticed something moving in the shadows. Whatever it was began walking slowly into the center of the circle of light from the street lamp. It stopped and lifted a hairy hand and motioned for Russo to come over to it, repeating the words again. Kerr, he want you. Sam tried to pull Russo away. The dog was terrified and shaking badly, and if dogs could cry, she would have been near tears. Russo thought it must be a kid who wandered out in the night and he needed help. Russo asked if he needed help or knew where his house was. The thing answered with the same call, Kerr, he want you. Russo looked closer and realized the thing was no kid. It was about three feet tall and was covered in fur and had a chipmunk-like face. Its belly was a large pot belly that gave the thing a look of old age. Bill Russo was about 20 feet away from it, and Sam's discomfort continued as the creature's wail grew louder and more intense. Russo became certain that the thing was not human, and he became certain that he didn't want to get any closer to it. He and the dog backed away and made a huge circle around the creature and headed for home as fast as they could. Russo sat up all night thinking about the encounter and repeating the words in his head, and he believed the thing was saying, Come here, we want you. I really didn't do it justice. I was hoping to have my grandson do the uh, Pukwudgie communication, but uh, he's not here with me, and if I ask my 16-year-old to do it, he would he would tell me no and he's probably laughing at me from the other room 
There was another encounter with a woman named Joan who was out walking her dog Sid on a cold Saturday morning in April of 1993. She and the dog made their way down the path when the dog suddenly became anxious and strayed from the path. Joan followed and when she found Sid the dog, he was lying down flat in the leaves and about 10 feet away, standing on a rock, was a strange troll-like creature. The thing was two feet tall, with pale gray skin and hair on his arms and the top of his head. Joan noted the creature didn't seem to have any clothes, but it was hard to tell because the creature had a distended stomach that hung down over his waist and unmentionables and nearly reached its knees. The creature obviously suffered from Dunlap's disease, his belly Dunlapped over his belt. I'm here all night, ladies and gentlemen. Joan said that the creature's eyes were a deep green color, that it, was om- that it also had large lips, and it had an elongated, almost canine-like mouth. The hairy thing stood perfectly still and stared at the woman with not even the slightest hint of an expression on its face. It was like the creature was surprised to see her. Joan was frozen in place and felt like the air in her lungs had been pushed out. At that moment, her dog, Sid, finally came to his senses and ran back to the main trail, dragging Joan along with him. At the most, Joan's encounter lasted about half a minute, but her experiences with the creature didn't end there. Though Joan never returned to the woods, the creature still haunts her. She's been visited by the creature at least three times, probably more, while she's sleeping. It hasn't tried to hurt her or speak to her, but it's still unsettling. She only sees it staring at her through the bedroom window, and even then the creature leaves once Joan notices it. Each time this has happened, Joan was fully awake and was able to move. In the same area, a man named Tim also had a couple of encounters with puckwudgies. The area is known as the Bridgewater Triangle, and I promise that is on the topic list, so look for that episode in the near future. So Tim was out walking through the woods in 1997. That might seem like a strange thing to do, walking in puckwudgy infested woods, but Tim was said to be a paranormal investigator. As he's walking through the woods, a ball of light appeared to him. He became excited and pulled out his digital camera to take a photo. The orb suddenly disappeared and reappeared a few feet away. Tim followed it and the light repeated its action. Tim followed it and the light repeated its actions several more times. Tim eventually realized the light had led him more than 30 feet off the path into a thickly wooded area. Tim became frightened and made his way back to the trail. When he got there, he was shocked to find a two-foot-tall man-like creature working its way towards him. Tim turned and ran the other way. As he was running, he looked back and saw the creature walk back into the woods. The thing was bipedal and walked with a slight limp. It used its arms and hands to push branches aside in the same way a human would. A few years later, Tim was waiting for a friend in a parking lot close to the exact same forest where he had his encounter. The creature stood there watching him. Tim's car revved itself, the radio grew louder, and Tim ended up backing out of the parking lot in a panic and drove home. No word on what happened to his friends. New England isn't the only area that puckwudgies pop up in. They're also known to be seen in Indiana. 
In fact, the two stories in the beginning about Starsman and the little girl named Eloise both occurred in Indiana. The area of Mound State Park is known as an area where puckwudgies frequent. Jim Campbell, a security officer for Mound State Park, was patrolling the park in July of 2016. He was at the wood line near the pool when he saw a little figure about three feet tall running into the woods. The sighting lasted a few moments, but he was able to see that the creature was wearing drab clothes and was humanoid in appearance. It also seemed to be wearing a hat. He had a sense that it was a male. The area where the creature was seen was a heavily wooded area. It was around 5.30 p.m. when it was seen, and the weather was hot. I mean, it was summer. What is interesting here is that in both areas where these stories take place, the Bridgewater Triangle and Mound State Park, there are Native American burial areas. I'm not sure that has anything to do with it, but it does seem like it's a little bit more than a coincidence that the two places with the most encounters are also home to burial mounds and grounds. I also saw mention that there are seen near the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville, West Virginia. Moundsville, West Virginia is named Moundsville for the Indian burial mounds that are in the area. We did an episode on the West Virginia State Penitentiary. It's one of our first ones. It might be number three. I don't remember, but it is, in, is one of our earlier episodes. So is there a way that you can protect yourself from puckwudgies? Uh, they do have some weaknesses. Some people have speculated that they might be demonic in nature, and then others, like myself, believe they are closely related to fairies, trolls, goblins, etc. of Europe. Both salt and iron are no def known defenses against fairies and supposedly demons too, and apparently these items are also feared by puckwudgies. People have also said that reciting the Lord's Prayer will frighten a puckwudgie away. I'm sure that will work if the person reciting it truly believes in it. If you don't believe in that particular prayer, then it's just words. And I don't mean that flippantly. I mean that if you believe in a certain prayer or incantation or talisman, your belief is what gives it power, not the actual words itself. Personally, I have used the Lord's Prayer to banish the hat man. True story. According to Native Americans, the best thing to do is simply ignore puckwudgies. Acknowledging their presence or giving them any attention only aggravates them, causing the creature to follow the person and cause them misery at every opportunity. As for killing a puckwudgie, I imagine it's possible, but you better make sure you really kill it or it's going to haunt your every waking moment and possibly your sleeping ones too, and that's only if it just doesn't kill you. That's going to do it for this episode. Remember, you can find Lurk wherever you get your podcasts or at lurkpodcast.com where you can find episodes along with links to our social media accounts. If you like what you hear, tell a friend, and if you have a few minutes, consider giving us a five-star review or voting for us in the Paranormality Magazine's Top 10 Paranormal Podcasts. Voting is going on right now for the month of March, and that will end on the 20th voting for the month of what comes after March April voting for the month of April will start on the 21st 
It takes place every month at ParanormalityMag.com, Vote 25. You can find that link in the show notes if you would like to help us out. And until next time, keep lurking. <laughs>